Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. As you're grabbing your seat there, go ahead and uh, grab your Bible as well. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3, and one of my pet peeves um, that I have uh, when it comes to preaching and teaching is whenever a pastor who's been prepping all week uh, gets up and is like, you know what, I'm just going to do something different. Um, And uh, so even though that's a pet peeve, that's what I'm going to do this morning. Um, and I don't, I don't personally like it because like, I'm a creature of habit. Like it's, I've got to have it in front of me. Like I've got to see what I'm going to say. I mean, I'm very much like Ron Burgundy. If it's on the teleprompter, I'm going to say it. Um, which makes me nervous at times because I share my sermon with, with Josh throughout the week. And so he actually has access to look at it and edit it and whatnot. And so, um, sometimes he could throw something in there and if it's there, I'm going to say it. Um, but at the same time, um, I want to be I want to be faithful to the Spirit, um, and and even kind of Josh Josh texted me last night. Uh, I mean, it was probably eleven o'clock. He was like, "Hey, are you going to send your sermon to me?" Um, and I was like, "Man, I just I, I'm just not feeling it this week. Um, specifically, what what we're going to be looking at. I'm going to read what we're supposed to be looking at, um, but then I feel that we need to go a different direction with with what I was going to look at. And so. Um, we're going to get off the rails today, and uh, we'll just see what happens, all right? Um, Acts chapter 3, I'm sorry, we're in chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 5, um, is, is where we're going to read. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus." But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. 
for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Um, so setting up just the, the scene here, um, there's, there's the crippled man who we've been pretty much looking at for the last three weeks. Um, this man's been lame from, from birth, um, unable to walk, uh, completely hopeless and helpless, and at all times uh, needing resources from other people to be able to come in and provide for him. Um, and then when Peter and John are walking into the temple, they see the man, they turn to him, and they're like, hey, look, silver and gold we don't have, money we don't have, resources like that we don't have to provide for you. However, what we do have, we're going to go ahead and give that to you. We're going to give you Jesus. And they give this man Jesus, and this man's life is radically changed. And so then what happens in this scene is the, the, the rulers of the area, the religious leaders of the area, and that's kind of the names that are, that are added there, are uh, the high priestly family. So these are, if you're looking at Jerusalem and you're looking at Judaism, the Jewish people, this is kind of the staff of the Jewish people. They're gathering together, and one of the things that they're doing is basically determining whether or not God will do this whether or not God should do this, whether or not God operates in this way. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think sometimes we do that as well, is uh, we start looking at other people's lives, um, and, and we might see something happen within their life, and we start questioning whether or not God should have done that, or whether or not God would do that. Or we start praying for someone else, and we're kind of doubting in our own minds whether or not God will actually perform what God says He will actually perform in someone's life. And so we, we kind of gather committees together and we just start debating whether or not we think God should be God um, when it comes to this kind of scene. And so this is what the religious leaders are doing. They're seeing something happen within their people, within their community that is outside of the norm. It's unorthodox for a crippled man to now be walking around, leaping with joy, praising the God that they say that they know, yet this guy shouldn't be in their group. Um, because they see him as crippled. They see him as um, the, the reason why it refers to him being over 40 years old is the fact that this dude is um, not only just crippled, but crippled due to probably a lifelong sin that he has been um, wrestling with or walking through or, or just operating out of. And therefore, he should not be involved within the family of God because this is a sinner. Religious leaders are big on separating themselves from sin, And so in order to bring someone like that into the temple, like that's scandalous in this time period. And so they don't want this to happen. They want to keep their holy huddle and then keep the outsiders outside. Um, and so again, because this is happening, they're wanting to come to God or themselves ultimately and be like, can God do this? Can God actually operate in the way that, that what it is that they're teaching? And what they kind of come to the understanding on themselves is, no, God doesn't operate this way. God doesn't operate through this Jesus person that they're teaching. And so because they want this to stop, they're going to begin threatening the disciples. This Jesus whom you proclaim, this resurrection from the dead that you're proclaiming, that is apparently providing some, um, some healing for this crippled man. It's, it's, it's stirring up the people within Jerusalem. Like We want that to stop because not only is it a contrary to what we believe, but it's also contrary to our lifestyle. Like The livelihood of the religious leaders is by having authority and dominance over the people so that the people continue 
paying them so that the people continue supporting them so the people keep coming to them like it's all about authority and control and right now they're feeling the foundation of their control beginning to shift towards this new movement that's come into town and this new movement that specifically come from Nazareth as Peter starts talking this Jesus of Nazareth I mean in Mark 1 it talks about how uh, this Jesus from Nazareth Nicodemus responds with, is there anything, or Nathaniel responds with, is there anything good that can come from Nazareth? And so it's kind of a slap in the face when Peter says Jesus of Nazareth, because according to the religious leaders, nothing good should come there. So why is this common man, Jesus, from Nazareth, this, this carpenter, why is he now starting this, essentially just this resolu- or revolution within the community that is now starting to stir up the people to where they're, they're putting trust in this rather than in ultimately the teaching of these religious leaders. And so they're, they're afraid. They're concerned. They're upset. They're, um, they're starting to feel some anxiety within this. And so the only way in which they can keep their control and their authority is if they can snuff this out, if they can silence it in one way or another. And what I see here happening is even when they're threatening these disciples, these disciples say, hey, look, whether you think we should or should not preach in the name of Jesus, whether you think God will use this man, this common man from Nazareth or not, that's for you to judge. But as far as we're concerned, we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And that's just another way of saying from what we've personally experienced. And so these guys, these Peter and John, who according to these religious leaders are uneducated common men, have this power that is moving through them, that is providing healing physically, providing spiritual healing, providing emotional healing as the people are now having all things in common. They're, they're providing um, uh, peace and contentment amongst one another, even though they're diverse in their ethnicity, they're diverse in their socioeconomic background, they're diverse in all ways, but they're coming together and they're saying, man, we're all about this mission. We're all about this good news. We're all about this gospel to the point that we're willing to sell possessions in order to give to this thing. We, we literally want to resource this because of this man, Jesus Christ, and what we have seen and heard, what we have personally experienced. And so that was the thing that I could not kind of wrestle out in the preparation of this was, was I kind of wanted to go more to this 30,000 um, feet above this kind of moving from where God is operating personally, but then also globally when it comes to Nazareth, but then the whole world since God is involved with this Jesus man. Um, but what I think I need to f- focus more on in this passage, um, and we're going to go to Romans 8 here in a minute, um, is what does it mean, what have they personally experienced? What have they seen and heard? What happened to these guys that God is doing in their life, that even when they're threatened from the outside, even when they are um, being arrested and imprisoned, it is unwavering in their, their, their pursuit, it's unwavering in their mission, it's unwavering in what they think they need to do in this moment. Because for me, 
That's what I want to see happen within our people on a day-to-day basis, is regardless of circumstance, regardless of situation, regardless of persecution, regardless of opposition towards us, regardless of how crazy it is that we proclaim. Because if you think about it, guys, what we say is crazy. Is it not? I mean, when you look at the the story of the Bible, what we're proclaiming to someone who doesn't know it is crazy. The fact that we're following a family that started out as a virgin birth. Like, we're just thinking physically here. We're like, that's completely impossible. But we're following a guy who says, my mom conceived me while she was a virgin. I mean, we're look, no one's going to believe that. And then moving on from there, oh, not only was he born from a virgin, but he never messed up. Never messed up. And he's got brothers in the Bible who write books of the Bible. James, for example, is a brother of Jesus who not only follows him, but worships him and even testifies the fact that he is perfect. I mean, try to get one of your siblings to do that. I mean, not going to work. I mean, we're all about talking about the stories of how, how uh, just terrible our siblings are growing up. Like the ways, you know, that they messed with us growing up. I mean, like how hard is it to be James, the younger brother of Jesus, when you always want to be like your brother? I mean, at some point, James probably almost drowned trying to walk on water, trying to be like his brother. Like it's just not going to go well for him. Or like, I mean, can you imagine just being in that family anytime James as a sibling wants to be like, it wasn't me, mom, it was Jesus. And she was like, James, Jesus is perfect, all right? Like it's, there's a weight there that you can never be, like he's never gonna measure up. And so you've got this idea, like so, so not only that he's perfect, but then we say he, he then, because he was perfect and we're not perfect, death has to come into the scene because God says the wages of sin is death. If, if you sin against God, if you rebel against God, if God says do this and you do this, God says that provides death for you. Well, because we messed up, we're supposed to die. But instead, Jesus goes and provides that death for us so that we can now live. And so he goes to the cross. He dies for all of our mistakes, all of our mess-ups, all of our failures. But don't worry, not only did he die, but three days later, this guy rose from the grave. Like, he just came back to life. He moved a stone that no one could move. He got it out of the way, and he came back out walking. And for 40 days, just interacted with some of the disciples, ate with them. They're like, we're still doubting. We're not, we're not really sure about who you are. And he's like, look, look, stick your finger in this hole. It's me. And then from there, we say he floated up to heaven. And then after he floated up to heaven, we're literally, we're telling people there's going to be a day where he then comes back on a white horse and he just floats right back down to us. And so this is the story we're sharing with the world. And we're asking, do you believe? And they're like, you believe that? Yeah, I do. I do believe that. So it sounds crazy and to... It would be, if it wasn't true, it would be the easiest story to snuff out. It'd be the easiest story to silence. Just put your life at stake. You're going to die for this? We're telling you to leave your family. You're going to leave your family for a story you don't believe? We're setting the mood in here, guys. 
<laughs> I got all kinds of things in store for this one. I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, but we believe this. We believe this because it's true. And I want to show you why I think they believe it so much is because what's happened to them, what they've truly seen and heard. And so Romans chapter 8, this is, this is what happens for them. Verse 28, it says, We know that those who love God, all things work together for good. We know that those who love God, those who believe, those who have trusted, those who follow by faith, God's working out all things in their life for their good. We have a God who who has come out of heaven when we were at our worst and is moving in our lives in order for us to experience the greatest good that we will ever experience this side of heaven. He's working out everything. I love the fact that that in every moment of my life, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are working 10,000 things in my mind, in my heart, in my emotions, in my spiritual health, in my maturity. They're working things out in order for me to conform more and more to the Son of Jesus Christ, more and more to His image, so that I'm experiencing, I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm receiving nothing but good. Good. He's moving towards me. That's what we talked about last week. He's, it was moving towards you in order to bless you. He is moving towards us to work out all things for our good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So that's the first thing that God did for these men who are unwilling and unwavering to move in their mission of sharing Jesus. What he did, God called them out. And we see this, Jesus, in the beginning of the Gospels, Jesus goes out and he starts calling men to himself. He's, you're fishing, hey, no longer are you fishing for fish, you're fishing for men, come follow me. Hey, you, you, you want to go to a funeral for your family? No, leave them behind. You're following me. Hey, you want to have all kinds of possessions and wealth? No, that's not. Nope, come follow me. And so he's calling us. And I can, I can tell you, like when God called me, and it happened kind of over the span of three years, but when God called me, I was in fifth grade. I was 10 years old. I mean, I'm sorry. I was in seventh grade. I was 12 years old. A fifth grader who was 10 years old moved in next door to me. And as a 12-year-old, I was not raised in church. I did not grow up in church. I was 12 years old. I was hanging out outside with the fifth grader. He's looking at this bush. I mean, that's what fifth graders do. He's just looking at this bush, and he says, Hey, Dwayne, um, do, you think you can, do you think you can create that bush? Okay, man, I know you just moved in next door, but like, what are we talking about here? He's like, do you think you can create that bush? I was like, no, man, I can't create the bush. And he was like, well, I know who can create the bush. And then he goes on and he starts talking to me about God and how God created all things. And then he goes on and he says, but you know what? That bush actually doesn't even look like what it's supposed to look like because it's broken. He starts talking to me about sin and how sin broke everything. This is a fifth grader, 10 years old. 
This is why we value what happens next door because we're training up missionaries in order to share the gospel with their neighbors, but we want them to first hear the gospel and grow in the gospel and be changed by the gospel so that it provokes them, so that it initiates them, so that it empowers them to then want to share that good news with their neighbor. So I'm 12 years old at the same time. He's, he's sharing this gospel with me. The first thing I actually did in that moment, because I, I don't think that I necessarily received it in that moment, but I heard it. I went straight into my kitchen. I said, hey, Mom, i got to tell you something. And so I told her just exactly what he told me, except I used a plant that was in our kitchen. And then when I was a freshman in high school, two years later, freshman in high school, I walk in, and this youth pastor comes up to me, and he says, Hey, do you know Jesus? And I said, here's what I know about him. And I shared with him what that fifth grader shared with me. He says, well, there's, he said, that's, that's phenomenal. He said, there's, there's so much more to it as well. And what I want to share with you is, I want to share with you the depths of Christ that have implications for your daily life. He said, would you, would you be willing to meet with me on Monday at 3 o'clock? I said, I'd love to meet with you. Monday, 3 o'clock, I get out of school. I come with him for the next four years. We meet every Monday at 3 o'clock he was provoked in his life to share the gospel and nothing was going to stop him from doing that. He brought me under his wing. He brought me under, he, he literally just gave me exposure to the implications of the gospel. To what Jesus was doing in the lives of people. Hey, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to pray for some people. Do you want to come with me? Absolutely, I want to come with you. I want to see who this Jesus is. I want to see and I want to hear and I want to, I want to experience what Jesus is experiencing and doing in the world around. And so through those relationships, God called me to himself. He drew me to himself. And then after he called me, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I know those are some words that have a lot of debate foreknowledge and predestination the main thing you need to know from foreknowledge and predestination is God is not reacting to what happened but from the foundations of this world from before we were thought of God had a plan in which he was going to call us in which he was going to draw us in which he was going to redeem us in which he was going to save us God has always been in control of what is going on we can trust that he is on top of things when it comes to this so it says in verse 30 of Romans 8, and those whom he predestined, he also called. To those whom he called, he also justified. He justified. So this is now, so he called you. Now he's doing something for your state of identity. Where we were talking about in communion, where we were sinners, he's coming in and he is now acting as a judge in order to handle the issue of our sin. So justification is a legal term, and we love justification. We love legality. The reason why I know that is because how many shows are there on TV that revolve around legal systems and judges? And, I mean, you've got CSI, you've got Law and Order, you've got, I mean, Kelsey, help me out. You DVR all of them. Um, <laughs> But, but literally, there's all, you get any type of prosecution, you get any type of good detective work, anything. We are sucked into it. We love legality. We love the strong arm of justice in order to be served. And so this is God operating out of the posture of being a judge in which he's going to deal with sin. 
And so he's going to justify. And so the beauty is, is that our world is us in this huge court system with God where God is the judge and we are the defense. And the law is the prosecution. And the law is looking at us, and you just go to the Ten Commandments. Just go to the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? Okay, you're a liar. Have you ever lusted? Okay, then you're an adulterer. Have you ever killed someone? No. Well, have you ever been angry at someone? Yes. Okay, well, then you're technically a murderer. So just by those three things, have you ever stolen something? Even if it was a pencil in first grade, you're a thief. So like just off of the Ten Commandments, not looking at the other 613 that are in the Old Testament, but just those, you're a lying, stealing thief that has committed adultery and that would kill somebody if you had the opportunity. And so our defense is not looking too great. But what happens in the courtroom of God is we're over there kind of shuddering, figuring out what do we do when the judge comes in? What do we do when the prosecution's there? Like, what is our defense? And so we start moving towards how can I clean myself up? How can I present myself in a way that's going to ultimately provide for me salvation, provide for me forgiveness? And so we start saying, God, here's, here's the amount of old ladies that I've walked across the street. Here's the amount of uh, money that I've given to charity. Here's all the good things that I've done to my siblings when I did, really didn't want to. Like, I did clean my room once. Like, like, we start trying to go down this road of here's the good things I've done versus the bad things I've done. And so we're trying to tip the scales of justice. And the reality is those scales don't exist. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism, where we're trying to operate out of morality, good versus evil, and by doing more good than evil, we think that's providing therapy for our lives. It's kind of numbing us. And because we think it numbs us and does good for us, it then becomes our deity. It becomes our God. We trust good and evil rather than the author of good, the author of salvation, the author of life. And so God comes into the judge. He comes into the courtroom and he looks at us. And we're trying our best to plead our case. And what I love is Jesus comes into the scene. He comes into the courtroom. And he doesn't go to the table of prosecution. He comes over to the defense. He comes over to us. And he sits down next to us. And he says, I'm going to present you today. I'm going to represent you today. And God looks at us and he says, here's what you've done wrong. Here's all the ways that you've rebelled against me. And God looks at Jesus. And on Jesus' part, he says, what are you going to represent? And Jesus says, I went to the cross and I died for everything. That was his penalty. And God then looks at me and he says, all right, you're free to go. You're pardoned. Pardoned does not mean that you've never done anything wrong. We have done wrong, but we're free to go. We're free to go. Now, what we try to do a lot of times in that scene is when we're free to go, as it moves on from justification, it says he also glorified us. The process of glorification, like becoming perfect, becoming like Christ, is what we call sanctification. I know I'm using a lot of church terms here. Sanctification is just growing, maturing into the image of Jesus, becoming more like Jesus. What we try to do is when we walk out of that courtroom, our natural default as humans is to say, that was close. Now let me earn what was just freely given. Now let me move on to 
good works and good deeds in order to keep this blessing that I've just received. And God's saying, man, if works weren't the thing that saved you, why are works going to be the thing that keeps you? It's not the truth. But rather, what Jesus also represents in the courtroom is the fact that he lived the perfect life, that he in every thought was holy, in every action was holy, in every deed was holy, so that when we're free to walk out of that courtroom and we begin living our life, we're living our life operating out of an identity that Christ is now inside of us. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The Duane who was the rebellious Duane, the sinner Duane, the identity of sin Duane, no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. The, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So I'm now living out of the identity of Jesus. So when God looks at me, when God looks at me, what he sees is the same Jesus that he saw at Jesus' baptism when John the Baptist baptized Jesus and God the Father looked down on him and, and the Holy Spirit floated down like a dove and landed on him and the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. God looks at me before I ever preach a sermon, before I ever um, go and on a mission trip, before I ever try to do anything that is good for Jesus or at the same time, anything that is in rebellion of Jesus because we still mess up, right? We still sin, right? Like we're, we're not perfect people. Regardless of those things, God looks at me because of Christ and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We're so longing for the day when God looks at us and says, well done, that good and faithful servant. The truth is he's already said it. And he is saying it over your life today. Hey, well done, man. Before you even go out of here and you share a message with somebody, well done. Well done. Because Christ is in you. You have a new identity. This is what they've experienced. It goes back in, ver in Romans 8, verses 15. This is why I think the disciples are operating out of the way that they're operating. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. I mean, do we remember 50 days earlier, what was Peter doing? Before he's preaching the sermon, 50 days earlier, at the crucifixion of Jesus, what's Peter doing? He's denying him three times and he's running. 50 days later, Peter's proclaiming a message while twice being arrested off of stage and imprisoned. Hey, man, y'all can judge for however you want to judge, but for me, I cannot help but speak of Jesus. Well, two months ago, man, you were running from Jesus. All right, well, something happened. Holy Spirit fell on me, man. Holy Spirit empowered me. Holy Spirit's taken that identity of Jesus, and it's getting him into my bones, and he's getting him into my heart, and he's getting him into my mind. He's getting him into my actions and my thoughts. I'm, I'm being strengthened in order to share this message with as many people as I can possibly share it with because I have been blessed by God. I have been empowered by God. God has moved towards me in order for my good to become a reality. 
We have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. I love the fact that it's adoption as sons. What that means is when we were in that courtroom, not only is the judge pardoning us and saying you're free to go, but the judge is also saying, wait, 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 wait. Before you leave those doors, I want you to know not only did I pardon you of all your mistakes, but I also just adopted you and you're going home with me. You're going home to my house. And you're going to be able to play in my backyard. I don't want you going to the slums anymore. I want you coming to my home. You have access to my pantry. You have access to my kitchen. You have access to the bedroom where you can rest in your life now. You don't have to work for it anymore. You can rest in your state of well-being. Because I've provided you Christ. I've provided you my spirit. I've provided for you salvation. And therefore, we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. We're crying this out. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you doubt it at times? Absolutely, we doubt it at times. We doubt whether or not we're truly in. And what he says the Spirit of God is also doing is preaching to our souls daily, hey, he's got you. He's got you. I know you're doubting. He's got you. He's holding you in his hands. He's holding you. There's nowhere you can go. There's nowhere you can run. There's nowhere where you can rebel from him. It doesn't matter how hard you want to at times. God is holding you, and the Spirit of God is proclaiming to your spirit that you are children of his. And if therefore you're children, then you're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now we're talking inheritance. Now we're talking, you've been pardoned, you're coming home with me, and not only are you coming home with me, but all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. Three things on inheritance, and I'll start closing it out here, hopefully. Three things on inheritance. The first thing that we receive in inheritance is that we get what is kind of referred to as glorification. There's going to be a day in which we get a new body. And a lot of us in this room, and I kind of joke about this at times, but a lot of us in this room can say amen to that if you're older than 28. Those under 28, you're like, man, I'm, I'm good with what I got. <laughs> like, but those over 28, you injure yourself sleeping. Like those things happen. Like it just, you, you're, you can't wait for a new body. We get that new body one day. That is a part of our inheritance. The second thing that's a part of our inheritance is we literally get the world. We get everything that Jesus has access to. We, we are co-heirs with Christ, and Christ gets everything. So Christ is ruling and reigning over all of creation. The new heavens and the new earth are all his, and they are also all ours. And so we get to enjoy all of that stuff as part of our inheritance. And the third thing that we get, and I think this builds up to the best thing, man, we get God. We get God. He is our ultimate inheritance. If you were to get a new body, leave that hoopty one in the past, if you were to get a new body and you were to get all of the world and all of the heavens, but you don't get God, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Christ is our greatest treasure. And He is what we ultimately get and receive when we come into the family of God. We get 
God. We get him in times of struggle and in times of, of issues, in times of circumstances where we just don't feel like we're possibly going to make it. God shows up and says, even if you don't make it, you've got me. You've got me and there's no greater place to be than in God. We get him. And then unfortunately in verse 17 of Romans 8, it doesn't end there. It says, comma, provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. You think Peter's experiencing some suffering right now where he's at in Acts chapter 4? Jesus, man, I'm, I'm proclaiming your message. I'm not denying you anymore. I'm proclaiming your message. And now I'm getting arrested and thrown into prison. How is that working out all things for my good? But yet God is saying, man, it's not based on your circumstances, Peter. It's based on the joy that you receive from knowing me as well as sharing me with others and then receiving the joy that you get when you see other people now treasuring and knowing me. Man, I'm not telling, those are the two greatest things that we will experience this side of heaven is us knowing and treasuring Christ and then seeing others come to know and treasure Christ. If we live a life void of those two things, you will live the crummiest life you could possibly live this side of heaven. doesn't matter how much money you have or how big of a house you have or how big of a family you have. If your family and your resources have no hope attached to them in Christ, then they're going to crumble. It's going to fall apart. And this is what has radically changed and transformed their life to the point that they're able to say, and this is Paul now, able to say at the end of Romans chapter 8, and think about this in regards to what Peter and John are responding to these, uh, these, these uh, Jewish leaders who are now threatening them. Look at what Paul says at the end of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these threats that are coming towards us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Again, he's going back to that courtroom. God is working out the courtroom of our world on a daily basis. We are mere recipients of it and then agents of it. We're agents of this message. Hey, we got to show you a lawyer. His name's Jesus, who is able to provide a lot more for your account than any other lawyer you try to go and find. Go find another religion. Go find another hobby. Go find another mistress. Go find another job. Go find anything else in order to try to change your account. And it's not going to go well for you. But Jesus as a lawyer who's able to come in and say, this is what I provide for you, is not only just a defense, but it's a pardon. And not only is it just a pardon, but it's an adoption in which you're going home with us and we're then blessing you with every. Thing that we have. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who's to condemn us? Who's to persecute us? Who's to offer opposition towards us? We've got Jesus interceding for us. We've got Jesus going to bat for us. We've got Jesus who's telling God who we are now rather than who we used to be. And this is why the devil's oftentimes referred to as an accuser. You know why? All he's trying to do is remind you of who you once were. Hey man, God doesn't love you. You know why he doesn't love you? Because you messed up yesterday. You know why he doesn't love you? Because you didn't pray yesterday. You know why God doesn't love you? Because you looked at that girl in a lustful way. You know why God, do, God doesn't love you? Because you um, hit your kid maybe when you shouldn't have hit your kid. Or maybe you should have. I don't know. You know why God doesn't love you? And you fill in the blank. This is what the Satan, this is what evil, this is what sin, this is what it's doing in our hearts and in our minds at all times. And what he's doing here for us is he's saying in those moments, Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus is saying to you, hey, hey, you don't have that spirit of, slavery that leads to fear anymore you don't have to believe those accusations you don't have to believe that condemnation that's over you anymore because romans 8 1 starts with therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus there is no one looking at you anymore saying you deserve death but now because of christ in you all you deserve is life and life abundant that is all you deserve because of christ in you is good. Verse 35, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I love it. it. Just Let me give you some options here then. Who can try to separate us? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered and all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm not a conqueror because Dwayne's awesome. I'm a conqueror because through Christ, I'm able to be awesome. But I'm awesome because I'm operating out of his identity. I'm now living in Christ rather than operating out of my own strength. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, talking about Peter and John here with the Jewish people, the rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, in case he missed something, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, is that not a message that empowers? Is that not a message that transforms us that allows us to be able to look at our circumstances and say hey man you can say whatever you want to say about me but because of what I've seen and heard and what is happening in my heart what's happening in my spirit I'm good I'm good and because I'm good I'm going to share with you the good news I'm going to share with you this message this Jesus I'm of the band. Go ahead and come on down. Man, let's just think about that. Let's just consider this. Jesus is not just some great teacher 2,000 years ago that we're trying to hold on to like a thread 
and then trying to kind of use that in order to create an organization. No, no, no. He is active and alive and present in our hearts, in our minds today. And the same Jesus who is empowering and emboldening uh, Peter and John, and then also Paul, to be able to say these things because of what they've experienced. Man, he is doing that in us today. He's doing it in us today. He's offering us this grace and he's reminding us every single day. Man, you don't have to defend yourself anymore. You don't have to pretend you're something you're not. Become who you already are, is what he's saying. You are already perfect. You are already sinless. You are already seen as well-pleased in God's eyes. So live it out. Become the righteousness that God already sees in you. So now when I pray, I don't pray because I feel like I'm trying to check off a list and I have to do it, and if I don't, God's upset with me. No, I pray because I get to pray to a God who already looks at me and says, man, I love you and I've got nothing against you. I get to share a message with other people because I know God is the one who calls and justifies and sanctifies and redeems and ultimately glorifies. God's the one who does that. I don't have to, like, there's no way I can possibly mess that up unless I'm just telling people, like, hey, in Satan you can be redeemed. Like, no, that's obviously not the truth. In Christ you can be redeemed. So I'm just sharing the gospel. And as I'm sharing the gospel, God does the saving work. Like, you can't mess that up. And if you really think you can mess it up, just literally, just open the Bible and just read it to them. Don't, you don't even have to add anything. God saves people. So we just share the message and just watch God do what God does. Man, that's what I want to experience daily is the grace of God pouring into my life and then seeing the grace of God be poured out into those around me. So how does that operate itself in your life? Are you receiving all that they have seen and heard and have experienced? Are you receiving that? And if you're not, if you're like, yeah, I, I don't think I'm receiving it. I don't feel like I'm receiving this on a day, daily basis. I still feel like I'm kind of at the defense table trying to figure it out. Well, then let's chat about it. Let's chat. And if you are receiving it, is it overflowing to the point of looking at those outside who are hopeless and helpless, kind of like the crippled man spiritually? And they need someone to come to them and say, hey, silver and gold, I don't have it. Jesus, I do. I'm going to provide you some Jesus. I want to give you some Jesus. And then see their lives radically changed for him. So, So let's just take some time. There's, there's different postures of worship. You can, you can sit and worship. You can kneel and worship. I mean, if you want, you can go to an aisle and get face down on the floor and worship. You can stand and worship. You can raise hands and worship. 
you can respond how God is operating within your heart and within your mind to be able to look at him and say, you're good. You're working things out in my life. And I still have some mess in there and there's some nastiness going on in there and I'm still trying to figure that out. But God, what I can see, what I'm hearing is that you're good and that you're moving towards me, that you're calling me, that you're drawing me out and you're providing for me not only pardon, but you're also providing for me adoption where you are blessing me. And so Lord, I want to receive that. I want to to experience that today. So let's just respond in worship however God's working in your life. Let's do that. Father, we thank you so much for your love. God, we thank you for for your word that shows us exactly what you are doing in our lives. How you are working out all things for the good of those who love you. And God, we we love you because you first loved us. So thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to us. Let us respond accordingly to your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at